You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Ridgecrest Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. To connect with us or learn more, visit us online at ridgecrestbaptist.org. If you have your copy of Scripture, if you'll turn to Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, if you'll stand with me as we stand upon the solid rock of God's Word, so let's stand together. I'm going to read this passage of Scripture to you, and I believe that this passage will encourage us to keep the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, in the middle of all we do. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. If you'll look at me for a moment, that word then is telling us this is right after Jesus ascended. He had just given the great commission again, and then he ascended into heaven. So that's the then. And it says, this is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. Now pause there for a moment and just realize that we are at the very beginning of the church. They numbered not much more than 120. There were 120 there. There may have been some others elsewhere, but let's just say that's a small group of people and it's about to explode in number. And and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man, that's Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akel Damach, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Mattathias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Mattathias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you and ask that you will allow these words to speak to us. God, you have a message for our hearts today. You are telling us, God, how important it is for us to allow your spirit to guide us and what that looks like. Lord, we can say all day long uh, to be filled with the spirit, but what does that look like? And I believe, God, you show us in this passage what it looks like to be right in the center of your will, in the midst of your presence, having the Holy Spirit in the middle of our hearts. 
May that be so for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, some of you are like me, and uh, you've got a few more years under your belt. I love this service. I know many of uh, our uh, kids and young people are in this uh, room. Uh, so when I say the Brady Bunch, you guys seen, seen the show, The Brady Bunch? Yeah, you guys know? Okay, good, good, good. Some of the, some of the young'uns know what the Brady Bunch is, so this maybe won't fall as flat as I thought it might. But nonetheless, uh, back in the Jurassic Age, there was a show called The Brady Bunch, and uh, you can probably, those of you who remember this, uh, the sitcom well, here's the story, right, of a lovely lady. And I'm sorry I sang that to you, but anyway, you know that. You know that story about a man and a woman coming together, blending their family, three boys, three girls, and so much fun. That, th those shows really are pretty good TV. But one of my favorite memories from the show, not because I'm a middle child or anything, but was the character of Jan, the neglected middle child. And you remember her tagline, right? Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. All right, you got that in your head? You know, she was always caught in the middle. She had Marsha as the older sister, and the older sister just uh, got all the attention. She was beautiful, and so Jan was always worried about that. And then her younger sister, you know, had the pigtails and was beautiful, and so everybody was doting on her, and there was Jan in the middle. Well, this morning, if ever there was such a thing as a middle child passage of scripture i just read it to you i just read to you a middle child passage and here's what i mean if you look at those verses that preceded it we have this amazing passage that tells us about jesus's last few moments on earth he gives the great commission which is like this power-packed encapsulated amazing bit of theology and then if that's not enough he just raises on up into heaven he goes up into the clouds. It's an amazing uh, portion of the scripture. And then after this in chapter 2, we have the day of Pentecost when the church has this amazing revival and there's tongues of fire and there's wind and all of these things and 3,000 people get saved. And if you look real close with me at the passage I just read to you, I just read to you the minutes of the first personnel committee meeting of the early church. Now, if ever that's a middle child kind of passage, that's it. And probably in this room, if you've been a part of Ridgecrest for a long time, you've probably never really been a part of a personnel committee. But when I, if you ever have been, you know that that is not a glamorous job, okay? It's hard work. But if you look at this text, the main thrust of the text, my, my Bible says this, Mattathias chosen to replace Judas. The main thrust of the text is replacing Judas Iscariot. Now, there's another Judas. You notice that? He's another one of the disciples. He's okay. Uh, but this passage focuses on that betrayer of Jesus and what it meant for him to be replaced. And I know that that doesn't sound like a very exciting portion of Scripture. In fact, you may be saying, well, how do you say Marsha, Marsha, Marsha in Greek? Well, listen, I want you to know that this passage is, in my opinion, a linchpin sort of passage. In fact, I would say it sets the pace and gives us the main character of the book. The main character of the book is not Mattathias. The main character of the book, as we said a couple of weeks ago, is the Holy Spirit, the work of the Spirit of Jesus in those early disciples. And this passage of Scripture that I just read to you makes that plain. When we talk about church history, we are tempted to think of church history like we would any other kind of history and talk about the personalities and how those people led the way. 
But as we'll see in the book of Acts, yes, there are people that God works through, but the emphasis is not on the personalities. It's not on the gifts of those early disciples. The emphasis is always on the work of God, the work of the Holy Spirit through the individuals. Human effort won't build Christ's church, but the Holy Spirit working through us will build the church. That is key, not just for today, but for the rest of this series, and I hope the rest of our lives on this earth, that we understand that if we will keep the Holy Spirit in the middle of all we do, marvelous things will take place. And I believe it all starts with obedient prayer. Now, it is important for us to see this, and I know it's a theme like prayer. We talk about a lot because it's basic. In fact, when we think about the birth of the church, we often go to Acts chapter 2, and we say that the church was born on the day of Pentecost. I've said such things. I've probably even said it today. But the truth is the birth of the church takes place in the upper room. If you'll notice in verses 12 through 14, before the day of Pentecost came, there were several days, if not weeks, of obedient prayer. Before we do ministry in the name of Jesus, we had better get serious about praying to Jesus. Now this is, I think, basic 101 kind of Christianity, but the reality is, in practice, most of us, we come to church and we want to hear a sermon, but if you are, are ministry-minded, you're kind of like, okay, I want to find out what God wants me to do. We are geared in that way. We think if there's a noble cause that we're involved with, the very first thing we want to do is get involved. Often when we have our Discover Ridgecrest dinner, that's a big part of that dinner. People want to know how they can get involved in the church, and that's okay. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. But first, before we talk about what we're going to do in the church, we need to be obedient prayer warriors. And you'll notice in Acts, that's exactly what's going on. In fact, if you'll look up in verse 4, Acts chapter 1, verse 4, it says this, And while staying with them, Jesus, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. Now, the disciples were smart enough to know by this point that when Jesus said, Wait, he wasn't telling them to go and, and just twiddle their thumbs. He was not telling them to go and do nothing. Wait meant pray. They learned that in the Garden of Gethsemane. They knew that when Jesus said wait, he was not wanting them to go into spiritual neutral gear, but he wanted them to pray. The disciples, after Jesus ascended, knew what they were to do. Verse 4 had told them what to do, and so what they do in verses 12 through 14 is obey. They go back to Jerusalem, which was a relatively short distance, and they go there into the same room where they had had the Last Supper with Jesus, and they were unified in prayer. All of the disciples are together, of course, minus Judas, who is no longer with them. The women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers, verse 13, were also gathered there. Now, keep in mind who's at the prayer meeting. Who is at the prayer meeting? The people at the prayer meeting, with few exceptions, are fresh off of failure, and nobody is more fresh off of failure than the guy named Peter. These are individuals who had failed Jesus terrifically. They weren't terrific. They had failed Jesus terrifically. 
And yet you'll notice that there is a forgiving presence here and Jesus has told them to go to the upper room and pray. They are fresh off a failure. But I want you to realize the wounded shepherd has healed their wounds. The shepherd was nailed to a cross to forgive them of their sins and he begins immediately to do what Jesus does, forgive and restore. And I want to pause here for a moment because when we come to church on a Sunday, we are usually in the presence of people who either uh, have been or are seriously contemplating getting serious about their faith and doing the work of ministry. But many times what's keeping you from doing that are the wounds in your heart. Or the failures in your past. There may have been another time, maybe even another church where you were serving the Lord and you either made a mistake or someone made a mistake or a sin, if you want to call it that, and hurt you and you've been on the sidelines for a long time. We are all at one time or another fresh off a failure when it comes to ministry. We will all have an excuse from the Lord to not do the work of the Lord. Uh, and at least in our opinion, we have an excuse we think from the Lord, but we don't. Because the wounded Savior heals wounds. And I just want to say this to you today. If you are wounded, you are not worthless. You're just like me and you're like everybody else in this room. And the scars in your life from your past do not need to stop you. They need to stop stopping you right now. But nonetheless, these are all people fresh off a failure. And the only way to mitigate spiritual mistakes is through meaningful prayer. So when I say that the wounded Savior is bringing these people fresh off a failure, how do you get over that? Because let's be honest, if we really mess up and do something wrong, it's just so easy to listen to the devil and say, well, you messed up, so you're done, you're finished, you know, no more, no mas, you're, you're out of the picture now. But we need to ask the question, what, what does it mean to get back to where God wants me to be? And you'll notice it's the upper room. The upper room represents prayer. It's a waiting a holding pattern, a moment of pause, but it's a moment of prayer. And in the moment of prayer, those fresh off a of failure get in one accord. And what that means is, is they come together, there's peace among them. They all are at peace with the fact that they're working with other failures. So let me just say this. You will be at your best here at Ridgecrest when you uh, realize your failure um, and realize you're just hanging out with a bunch of failures. That our work in ministry, we're not doing the work of ministry because we're better than other people. We're just smart enough, wise enough, maybe is the better word, to say we have failed. We know we have failed. We have sinned. We have fallen short of the glory of God. And yet we still believe that we have a job to do, that the wounded Savior will heal us, that we have a way forward together in Christ. Don't let the world tell you that you are through when Jesus still has work to do through you. We pray. We get together. We get devoted to prayer. I've shared many a time, uh, not just with this congregation, but I've shared it in, in, with the Missouri Baptist Convention. I, I remember sharing it in DeSoto. I, I learned a long time ago that churches can be, well, they can be difficult places. We all come in with opinions. We like this. We don't like that. We want to go here. We don't want to go there. Everybody, if we bring our opinions together, we're going to have nothing but uh, chaos, right? But one of the things I've noticed is I've seen in Baptist churches, as a pastor, I've been a part of more Baptist uh, business meetings than I care to tell you about. I've seen a lot of things. I've seen some pretty dumb things. The one thing I've never seen is a fight break out in a prayer meeting. 
When we are praying together, what that is doing, it's causing us to put our words, our thoughts, our desires on hold long enough to hear God's thoughts, God's words, and God's desires. Why is obedient prayer so important? Because your opinion is not. My opinion is not important. God's desire for our church is ultimate. And the only way we get to the place where we hear the word of God, where we hear the will of God, is when we quiet our voices and let the Lord speak. We fight too much because we pray too little. We pray all the more, and God shows us all the more of his glory. I'm going to tell you, we didn't plan it this way. It's just the way it happened. God is always on duty. We are starting a week of prayer today. Amen? It's no mistake, it is no accident that in this middle child passage that is beginning with a plea to the church to pray, we are pleading with you to pray. Now, I know that many of those spots out there may be full, but if you see somebody there that you halfway like or halfway likes you, you might ask them, and maybe you can't even do that, I don't know. You might ask them if you can pray with them. It's a big room. Um, even if you only slightly know the person, you can mostly avoid each other and have a regular Sunday, okay? <laughs> Nonetheless, I'm, that's sarcasm. That's so bad. I keep telling other people, it's not a spiritual gift, and here I am doing that. But nonetheless, pray. Get involved in that prayer room. Get involved in it, because when the church is in its best position, it's because we are in one accord together in prayer. I know this passage may seem like a low-energy passage compared to the Ascension of Christ or the Day of Pentecost, but I believe this is a true high-energy passage because high-energy spiritual happenings begin in the quiet place of prayer. We have little bitty, you know, firecrackers. I remember as a, a child, if I wanted to get really good explosives, I had to come to Missouri because I lived in Illinois, and they don't allow those there. So I had to come get the big fireworks. But even a kid's fireworks aren't very big. And if you think about what the church needs today, I think you guys who have been really praying about revival and wanting to see our, our community and our culture change, we need more than Missouri fireworks. We need a nuclear explosion from God to shake up the world, to change the direction of the culture. We need more than fireworks. We need the power of God. We need an explosive power from above. And I believe that begins in prayer. The human inclination is to get busy uh, and to do uh, things in the church and in the community. I understand that. But Acts is showing us to get on our knees and to pray first because prayed up saints will be filled up with Jesus. And I want you to know this. This community and this world needs you prayed up and filled up with Jesus. Now, prayer. If we want to talk about what it means to have the Spirit in the middle, it makes sense that obedient prayer is the first step. The second step is equally obvious and yet often neglected, and that is scriptural sensitivity. Scriptural sensitivity. Now, if you look here at verses 15 through 20, I, I got to read that passage to you that has some expressions in it that you can go and talk with the kids with after church today. That's an awkward passage, isn't it? Hearing about the end of Judas. It's the only place in Scripture where we find out exactly what happened to him, and it's pretty rough. 
But nonetheless, I want you to notice what's happening here. Peter, in verse 15, he stands up to lead. He's not leading because he wants to be the boss. He's leading because Jesus left him in charge. Peter, feed my sheep. Peter, feed my sheep. Peter, feed my lambs. He was the one who failed perhaps the most, and yet Jesus is still calling him to lead. But notice what he does. When he leads, he stands up among the 120. He isn't above them. He's not bossing them around. He is among them, leading them. Peter is a beautiful example of what we are to be as Christian leaders. We stand up among the brothers, and we do not speak our own opinion, but the best Christian leadership is leadership that stands on the Scriptures, leadership that has scriptural sensitivity. In other words, my opinions more and more, and I'll tell you, this is true, over time, I started out at age 19. I know you uh, young people won't believe this, but I had some pretty strong opinions at age 19. At age 19, I had figured out the world. And now at age 48, I don't know anything. Okay, so that's how it works. So just enjoy your, your, uh, your monopoly on truth right now because it's about to change. The older we get, the more we see the holes in our arguments and how weak we are. But I believe that what God wants us to do is see that, that he wants us to realize that our opinions do not matter. So the only way that we are able to get away from our opinions is to have scriptural sensitivity. And if you'll notice in the text, that's what Peter does. Peter doesn't give his opinion. He gives the word of God. He quotes Psalm 62.5 and Psalm 109 verse 8 in relation to this awkward situation where Judas has betrayed Jesus. That's awkward. And then he goes and takes his own life, and you see what happens to him there. That's an awkward situation. Now, let me say this. If you want to serve Jesus in the church, get ready for awkward. Get ready for uncomfortable. Because when we start surrendering to Jesus, um, it's a painful process. And most of us take a lot of time to get to that place where we are letting go of our sins so that we can let God have complete control. But here, notice what Peter Fresh off a failure does, he prays, and then he lets the word speak in an awkward situation. He's leading them to a new leader, but he knows that he has to do it with common consent. They all have to be together, and he has to allow the scriptures to speak. When we are looking at difficulties in our congregation, when we are trying to honor God and be holy, the only way we will do that and be successful is if we have scriptural sensitivity. Letting the word guide us in every one of our decisions. Now I want to pause for just a moment and point something out to you. Verse 14, it says that these remaining disciples were devoting themselves to prayer together with, notice this, the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Even some of the early church fathers noticed this emphasis on the women. Now, we believe in our, our youth, I think this last week, our students had some talks about what this looks like, leadership in the church. We as a church believe that God's word does have certain positions of leadership reserved uh, for a male, male leadership. But I want you to see in this passage that that does not mean that women do not have a, an important, if not prominent role in the life of the church. The early church fathers said, you know, there's something wrong because they noticed in the second, third, and fourth century that women were not allowed to do anything in the church. And then here at the very birth of the church, women are mentioned as an important part of the gathering. 
Now here at Ridgecrest, we believe that God has a call and a work for all of us. We all have our appointed place and there are limitations. I don't believe, you know, the world says, oh, go do whatever you want. But God's word doesn't say that. God's word puts us in certain lanes and does that for a reason that's beyond my ability to describe. It doesn't mean I think that males are better or or females are worse or anything of that nature. There are roles. They're set there in the scriptures. But notice, leadership roles are not ignored as it relates to women. So let me just show you three things about Peter as a leader. One, Peter leads from among the people. So if we are going to be led well as a church, that means that we are led uh, in a way that the pastor, the elders, are from among us. We, we see this work together. We're working by way of consensus together. He is among, not above. That's important. Second, he leads, Peter leads with the word of God. He has scriptural sensitivity. Again, what I said a moment ago, don't, don't believe me? Get involved in ministry. It gets awkward sometimes. The situations become very difficult because we're sinners and sinners put us in awkward situations. The only way to manage through the awkwardness is to be sensitive to the Word of God, to let the Word of God be our guide. And third, notice that Peter leads with respect towards men and women. And I have to tell you, um, I I notice in the world, even in our denomination today, there are some who are taking some stances that, I don't know, I understand what they're trying to do, and you've already heard my position, but I just don't see how disrespecting women in the church in any way is a helpful thing. I see Peter showing us that we need to have respect. We need to believe that God has a way to use each of us in his own way. We let the word guide us. We let the word give us the lanes, but we trust in the Lord. The key here is we must think biblically. We must not let the world dictate to us, because the world has visions of equality and things of that nature. I understand that. But the Word is speaking, and I believe that God's Word is the Word of God, that this is His take on it. And quite frankly, your take or my take need to take a backseat to God's take. That is scriptural sensitivity. So we have obedient prayer and scriptural sensitivity. Those two things are crucial for you to have the Spirit in the middle of all you do. Now, obviously the church is unstoppable when we are prayed up, when we have the Bible at the center, and we are just filled with the Spirit. But let's finish with this thought, these questions. Who in the world is Mattathias, and who in the world am I? I think you see what I'm saying, or what I said earlier about uh, Mattathias may be like the male equivalent of Jan from the Brady Bunch. This whole passage seems to be like a middle child. I mean, here we have the story of the one who is to replace Judas. It seems like a big deal. Now, I don't know if any of you do any writing. If you like to write short stories, or maybe some of you in here are writing Russian novels, I don't know. Um, we'll just find out someday. But if you write a story, and you're you know, making it like most stories are, it's not unusual in the earlier chapters that you are introducing your readers to the main characters, right? Am I, am I losing my mind? Are you still with me? Any of you ever read books? Okay. That's how stories go, Shakespeare. You introduce your characters at the beginning. So... I mean, if you look at chapter 1, we're kind of introduced to a bunch of characters. We have all of the disciples. I read out their names to you. Did you notice that? I read out every single one of their names to you. Not only that, but we learn about the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And we also learn about these other two disciples, Justice and Mattathias. Um, 
Mattathias has like 18 names, whatever, I'll just, uh, or Justice does. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, we've got those two guys, all right? And, and so, wow, we're getting the main characters of the book, and here's what's wild. Peter, James, John, later Paul are mentioned. The rest of the guys are never mentioned again. What's really interesting is, is we learn all this about Mattathias taking the place of Judas. It seems like a big deal. It seems like we're being introduced to a very important character. Well, let me tell you this. Not only does the book of Acts tell us nothing about Mattathias, I'm a decent researcher. I read a little bit of history. I can't find anything definitive about Mattathias in all of church history. There is nothing out there that I can say. Now, if you go to Wikipedia, which is the source of all knowledge... When your friends tell you that they do research and it's just on the internet, beware, okay? Because there is a lot of junk out there. Now, I'll tell you, not just the hard copy books on the shelf, but just the good history that we know, there is nothing out there where we can definitively place Mattathias that he did this and thus and that or whatever. We don't know. Now, why in the world are 9 out of 12 of the disciples never mentioned again. How in the world are eight of the original 12 never mentioned again? What does this tell us except for this? The focus of the church's work is on the Holy Spirit and not on the human vessels. That's what this middle child passage is doing. It looks like it is not important. It may be the most important thing that we've read so far in Acts because it is telling us that for the church to be successful, there's obedient prayer, there is scriptural sensitivity, and then there's the rest of us getting out of the way of the Holy Spirit. Your name and my name are not what's important. Yesterday, I was on a very large campus within, let's say, 300 miles of where we're standing right now. A very large campus here in the middle of America. As we were driving around that campus, um, almost everywhere I looked, there were these beautiful buildings with names on them that I recognized from business, from the world of power and finance and money. Names I recognized. So these were well-known names. And I realized that in this world, many of us, we would consider ourselves a success if our names were on a beautiful building somewhere on this planet. But I want you to know that the book of Acts is telling us that that's not important. In fact, the early church, uh, when I say the early church, maybe uh, second, third, fourth century and beyond, they started naming churches after uh, these disciples, and I think that missed the point. Their names were never important. It was always about the Holy Spirit. When we make a church about a man, we are turning our backs on the power of the Holy Spirit. Your, your success is not based on how many uh, buildings have your name on it. I believe the only measure of success as a believer we will never know in this world. We will only know in heaven when people come up to us and say either directly or indirectly, your faithful witness is why I am here. The Holy Spirit spoke through you, Jeremy, in a sermon, spoke through you in a, in a Bible study, or maybe just a casual conversation with someone that you were buying lunch from. I don't know. But friends, it's not about you. It's about the Spirit of God. The vessels, the human vessels are not the focus. Church history, church history isn't what's important. 
What's important is, is that the church is His church, led by the Spirit. I think about being in a desert. A few times in my life, I've been out away from, you know, <laughs> civilization, as it were, in very dry places, and you get dehydrated so very quickly. Imagine that you are thirsty. I'm not talking about thirsty just in a, a little way, but in a major way, where you know if you don't get something uh, to drink in minutes, you are going to perish. Imagine walking in a desert, and, and, and then a mirage seems to appear, but it's real. It's, uh, there on a, on a flat stone is a cup of water. You grab the cup of water, and you drink the water, and you are saved. My guess is, is that when you tell the story in years to come, you will not bring much attention to what the cup looked like, but you sure will remember what the water tasted like. And I think that if we will see our lives in that way, you have the living water in you. You are to share it. The vessel is not important. If someone comes to know the Lord because of your faithful witness and does not know your name, that's okay. They may not remember your name or even your face, but they will never forget Jesus and they will spend eternity with him. That's who we are. We are people who need to decide that the vessel, as it were, matters not. And that everything is about Jesus and everything is predicated on us being filled with the Spirit. Our middle child passage here draws attention from, away from the vessel and into the water. This is the story of the Holy Spirit's work in spreading the gospel throughout the world using broken vessels. That's what Acts 1, 12 through 26 is about. It's about broken vessels. If we're, if we're looking at the human element at all, we're only looking at brokenness. But what we're seeing is, is that the Spirit of God is at work. It's not a story about people. Acts is not a story about people. Who is Mattathias? Who is Jeremy Muniz? Who are you? It doesn't matter. Matters not at all. What matters is, is that you are a prayed up, Bible-centered, Spirit-filled person. The message is about Christ alone. And I ask you, is the Spirit of God in the middle? The wounded shepherd calls you and me to heal the wounds of hurting people. But before we can do this, let me ask you this question. Is the Spirit in the middle of your heart connecting you to Jesus? Are you saved? Do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Before we can talk about making a difference for Jesus and being filled with the Spirit, you have to be saved by the blood of Jesus. Look at verse 25. I want to show you something here. Acts 1.25, there at the very end, to take place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside, and here's what I want you to get, to go to his own place. Friends, if you don't have Jesus in your heart, you go to your own place, and that place is hell. You either have Jesus and go to heaven, or you turn to your own place and go to hell. So it all starts there. You have to have Jesus, the Spirit in your heart, to save you from your sins. Only then, the second question, is the Spirit in the middle of your life? So believer, if you are here and saying, I believe that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, my faith is in the gospel, in Jesus Christ, is the Spirit in the middle of your life connecting what you do to kingdom work? Are you Spirit-filled when you serve Jesus? 
But what does that look like? Well, fortunately, the text speaks again. Look at verse 22, the second half of the verse. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. If you are right in the middle of where God wants you to be, we see in this passage that all our message is about Jesus dying for our sins and risen from the grave. He mentions the res resurrection here because that's kind of the end of the story in terms of the gospel story. Our message is no more and no less than the risen Christ. And if you are filled with the Spirit, you are leading people to that truth and helping them find a way to heaven. If you're struggling with answering either one of those questions, first, is, this, is Jesus in my heart? Second, is the Spirit of God filling my heart that I'm teaching and preaching and living the message of the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus? If you can't answer those two questions clearly, please come. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For additional resources, to learn more about us or get connected, visit RidgecrestBaptist.org.